The teaching text for today comes from Colossians 2. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today with open hearts and open hands to receive the message that John has prepared for us. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit so that we have complete understanding of the treasures of your wisdom and knowledge. During this time of year, we recognize there's so much to be thankful for, yet so many are hurting. Thank you, Lord, for wrapping your loving arms around us. You heal the brokenhearted and bind their wounds. Thank you for all you have done for us and for all you are going to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, thanks, Lindy. You may be seated. Um, I didn't get the memo. I thought it was next week, but Thanksgiving is this week, as it turns out. Um, And uh, this is the week that many of us will gather around the family table and quietly tolerate our family members' political opinions and uh, bite our tongues as we do that. Um, I do do love our family. Two of my siblings are here, my brother Joey and my sister Jamie, and their families are here. Uh, love my family. I shared about some Odom family traditions. So this Thursday, we'll, we'll get together and we'll sing, Father, we thank Thee, and bless the Lord, O my soul, before we eat. Um, I look forward to my mom's lemon poppy seed bread, which is really good. Uh, I like stuffing. It's fun. Uh, we have tons of desserts. I was remembering a family tradition uh, when I was in high school that on Sundays, my family always got together for big meals. And after big meals come a big pile of dishes. And I discovered as a kid that I could get out of doing the dishes if I made people laugh. And so we had a piano not too far from the kitchen. And so every week I would go to the piano and say, Jamie, I've written a really tasteful piece of music for you. And every single week I'd play Richard Marks, Wherever You Go, right here waiting. That song, da-da-da-da-da. And every week it made them laugh. And every week I got out of doing the dishes, which was really fun. Uh, but, you know, families are funny. Um, uh, my sister Jamie is here. Jamie is Jamie Ruth, named after our grandma, uh, Grandma Ruth. And uh, she's just a, a really unique individual. Uh, grandma Ruth, um, when my dad was a teenager, uh, was just an evangelist. I mean, she's still just an evangelist, a really fiery, funny woman. You're going to be around her and write down things that she says because they're really, really funny. But when my dad was a teenager and he got his driver's license, my grandma would, like, decorate the car, and it would say something like, revival tonight, or follow me to the revival. And my dad would have to drive around small town Arizona and invite strangers to the revival at the Assembly of God Church uh, that, that the family went to. Uh, Grandma gave out and still gives out, I mean, just tracts everywhere she goes. When I was a kid, she had this commercial t- cassette tape duplicator. So she would hear some sermon that she really liked, or she'd hear someone give their testimony, and she'd get the cassette tapes, because that was a thing, and uh, took it home, and she would make dozens and dozens and hundreds of copies of these sermons or these testimonies, and then she and my granddad would go travel in their RV, and wherever they went, Grandma would share these cassette tapes, and uh, (laughs) there's a a funny gift that we ended up giving Grandma, uh, my, my, my parents and my aunts and uncles a couple years later. Uh, was tied to that practice, she, she had the habit of storing all of her belongings in a particular place. And so 
Uh, one year, my, my parents and my, my aunts and uncles assembled uh, what they called a super bra for my grandma. It was this massive bra with pockets all over it. And so there's a pocket for the Kleenex and for the cash and a little slot for the cassette tapes and the tracks. Now you're laughing, but I have been at the restaurant with Grandma Ruth before where the waitress comes up and she'll reach into her shirt and she pulls out a warm cassette tape <laughs> and hands it, hands it to the server and says, oh, you'll like this, you'll like this. And even this week, she was hospitalized and had some, some real challenges and she was handing out tracts to all the, the techs and the nurses and the doctors who came in and... Grandma Ruth and those stories are part of my family inheritance. They're part of what inform how I see the world and how I see, you know, what it means to be an Odom. And you have your own family story. And as a church, uh, we have our own story too. We have, we have stories, we've got scriptures, we have moments and experiences that shape who we are and how we behave and what we're aspiring to as a congregation. And um, so, so for this month, the month of November, we're telling a story, the sermon series called This Is Us. And a couple of weeks ago, we shared uh, the, the first kind of tenet is we have a hunger for awakening. We shared the story of Habakkuk who prayed, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, but repeat them in our day. We talked about praying to, that God would give us a burden for awakening. And then last week, we started working through our mission statement. And uh, in fact, let's just read this together. Our mission as a church uh, is to, drumroll, to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. And Todd talked about uh, what it looks like to be part of a community and, and taught from Acts chapter 2. And it reminded me of a tweet that I favorited seven years ago, and I have tons of these that I've just kept that kind of mark the ages uh, for me. Of, and, I, and I came across a tweet that seven years ago I favorited, and it reminded me of Todd's sermon. So he said, older does not necessarily mean wiser, unless a fearless, transparent, examined life lived in community is part of the equation. I'm trying. And that was my friend Cavett seven years ago. And I loved that sense of, I'm, I'm trying, I'm in process, and that's, that's all of us. And today we're talking about what it means to be shaped by the gospel, what it means to be shaped by the gospel as a church. Do you ever hear the joke, uh, one fish says to the other, hey, how's the water? And the other fish says, what the heck is water? And the idea is the things that are normal for us, like, like we take them for granted. The things that surround us, like in your, fam your, your parents' house, like there's a couch that's just so ugly. And nobody knows that it's ugly anymore because it's been around forever. There's something that happened. There are things that we take as normal because they've been normal in our experience that might not be normal compared to somebody else's. Ways that our life has been shaped and contoured, uh, that, that it takes real examination to get our brains around. You know, when we're born, we start out as like this little lump of Play-Doh or clay, we're, we're, we're uniform, we're soft, we're flexible, and, and we're impacted by a variety of things. They shape us, they form us, they stretch us, they break us, and uh, we're certainly shaped by our context. Um, your, your gender, your ethnicity, your, your family of origin, uh, your, your nationality, uh, all of these things shape us. You know, I'm, I have been affected by the fact that I'm a dude. I'm a white dude. I'm an American white dude. I was born into the Odom family. I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma in the mid-80s. And some of you are like, he must be 13 years old. Uh, all of those things have affected me. It's my context. 
Uh, we're, we're, we're affected by milestone events, by, by life events. And so if you were to get up like Kay did and tell your story, you would tell your story in terms of life events. Well, this is when dad left, or this is when, when that person that I cared about died, or when, this is when we moved from here to there. There are life events that shape your understanding of the world and shape who you are as a person. And then finally, we're shaped uh, by our choices, you know, our hobbies, our character choices, our, our choice in friends, uh, our work. Uh, all of these things uh, contribute to who we are as a person, our context, our life events, and our choices. And it's somewhat easy to see how our choices affect who we become. You can go back to that crossroads moment when you went this way and you so wish you could go back and have gone the other way. We can see how our choices affect us, but it's difficult work to, to come to terms with how our context and how meaningful life events shape who we are. In fact, many of us, myself included, have given tons of money to counselors trying to make sense of our own story, and that's a journey that we, we all have to work. And the work of maturity and wisdom is determining, uh, learning how have we been shaped, what do we want to keep about that, what do we need to change about that, and what do we need to discard as we're on the road, we're in progress of becoming well people and whole people. In the text that Lindy just read, thanks for doing that, Lindy, uh, Paul is writing uh, to a church in Colossae, which is a, a city in modern-day, like, southwest Turkey. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a city, a, a group of people, a church that was deeply rooted in their own context that had affected them. These people had not known Jesus for a long time. Uh, they were living in, as Roman citizens, so they would have grown up, grown up with a pantheon of deities. There's Zeus and Athena and Hermes and seen statues all over their city uh, where people were sacrificing things to worship uh, these, these idols. They grew up in a community that had a strong Jewish presence, and so they were familiar with the God of Israel. They're familiar with the Mosaic law and certainly the, the dietary restrictions and circumcision. You know, they grew up around this, this place that had a lot of different ideas. They were shaped by their context. They were certainly shaped by a major life event for all of them when this guy named Epaphras came into their community and preached the gospel for the first time. And there were a handful of them who responded with faith. They made the choice, having heard this stuff that Epaphras uh, is offering us, we want to follow Jesus. And the consequence of those choices, you know, they're born into the context, they were, they were influenced by those life events, they made the choice to follow Jesus. As a result of that, they were facing intense social pressure. They weren't Roman enough for the Romans because they weren't worshiping the idols. They weren't making sacrifices to idols anymore. They also weren't Jewish enough for the Jews because they didn't follow the entire Mosaic law. So they're, they're this Christian minority that doesn't fit anywhere. And there, you know, there are some of us who may understand what it's like to be a minority. Maybe, maybe you've traveled or what it's like to be like totally the odd person out. And, and, and uh, that's what they were facing, intense social pressure. And Paul got it. Paul was a church planner, he's a missionary, he's a pastor, and he had heard about the faith of this community where they were a minority movement in a majority Roman Jewish context, and he wrote to encourage them because he gets what it's like to be on the outside, to be a minority. And he was writing from prison where he was in chains because of his beliefs about Jesus and the proclamation that he was the resurrected Lord of the earth. And so in Colossians 2, uh, verses 2 and 3, Paul tells the, the, the Colossians, hey, you guys don't know me, but I've heard about you, and I want to tell you why I'm writing. Colossians 2, 2 and 3. He said, my goal is that they, 
talking about the church in Colossae and the church in Laodicea because he wanted them to share the letter. My goal for writing is that they may be encouraged in heart. I wanted to build them up. I want you to be united in love, be on the same team in the face of, of opposition so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God. In the previous chapter, Paul was saying God's had a secret that He's kept through the ages and through the generations. And now he says that secret, the mystery of God, is Christ who was kept hidden for the ages and the generations. And in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, there was a story, I, I can't remember which South American country, they had a navy, and, and this morning NPR was reporting that they recovered this submarine that was lost about a year ago, and this huge recovery effort, and it made me think of all those movies where there's like sunken treasure, or buried treasure, you know, X marks the spot, and uh, all the danger surrounding like finding it and getting it. It said, in Jesus are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This was a mystery. This was a secret kept hidden through the ages and the generations. Do you want to be wise? Do you want to be well? In Jesus, in the person of Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Later in the chapter, in verses 13 through 15, Paul gives the Colossians some images to, to wrap their mind around what's going on with the person of Jesus. What does Jesus do in the life of a person? He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a, spect a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He's, giving, he's, he's trying to give them pictures that they can understand to get their minds around what is happening in the person of Jesus. Why in Jesus are, are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden? He said what happens when a person believes in Jesus is like a person going from death to life. It's like a person who's, been, who's, who's weighed down with debt. I mean, many of us know it's like to have student loans or mortgage or you've racked up credit card debt, and everywhere you go, it follows you. So imagine the power of having that debt forgiven. That's like what has happened with Jesus. Or imagine that you're being oppressed by these outside powers through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has conquered them and, and embarrassed them publicly. He says, all of this is happening in the person of Jesus, and He's the wisdom, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He takes us from death to life. He forgives our debt. He, he triumphs over the powers that oppress us. And then He says in verse 6, we're jumping around just a bit. He says in verse 6, this is the text that Lindy read, So, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And you can picture uh, like a plant. It's kind of plant imagery. You remember being in elementary school or elementary uh, kindergarten and, and you took a little seed and you put it in a wet paper towel and you left it and it sprouted. And that little like, like pebble looked like new life emerged from it. You saw it looked like a little tail, like a tadpole or something. Life was emerging. You put that in a little egg carton, begins to grow. Something green pops out of the ground as the stalk shoots up, saying this is kind of what it's like when a person comes to faith in Jesus. It says, just as you received Him and you had that initial burst of new life, 
Live in that same power that first gave you life. Put down your roots in Jesus, the one who caused you to, to first to bud. Put down your roots in Him. Be strengthened and built up in Him, the stock, and then let the, the fruit of your life be thankfulness. As I think about some of the people who, have, who I've admired the most, who've been wise counsel, who've been mentors to me, one of the things that characterizes them is that overflowing with thankfulness. They've got a really easy laugh. I think about some of my favorite mentors. They just laugh really easy, and I'm over here taking myself so seriously. And I think the fruit of a life that is deeply grounded in Jesus, that is built up in Jesus, is just overflowing with gratitude for the gift that life is, the gift of, of friendships, the gift of, of life with Jesus. They're overflowing uh, with thankfulness. Paul gives a picture of a person who has started with Jesus, is now growing in Jesus, blossoming in Jesus, and overflowing with Jesus. It's a picture of a life that is deeply immersed and deeply intertwined with the person of Jesus Christ. There's a, a sociologist named Joseph Grinney. Joseph Grinney, uh, did he write Influencers, Todd, are you in here? Uh, he bailed. He bailed it. I called it out. <laughs> Joseph Grinney uh, said, you are what you repeatedly think about. You are what you repeatedly think about. So immerse yourself in a data stream that shapes you into the person that you want to be. You are who you re- what you repeatedly think about. Paul says, immerse yourself in the person of Jesus, rooted in Him, growing in Him, strengthened in Him, overflowing with Him. And Beth Moore said, we're going to have to let the truth scream louder to our souls than the lies that have infected us. We need to be immersed in the person of Jesus. And sadly, many Christians uh, don't, don't deal with Jesus that way. And, and, you know, we're forgetful. God knows what we're made of. We're so forgetful, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. We treat Jesus like a 101 course that we take our freshman year and then we leave in the dust. Or we treat Jesus like a one-night stand. Like, I remember when we connected, but it's been a really long time since I saw him. We graduate from the gospel, we graduate from the person of Jesus, and we move on to rules or Christian principles, and we forget about what first gave us life, what first gave us hope. And this moving on from Jesus that so many of us uh, do habitually demonstrates a a misunderstanding that we have both about the person of Jesus and about the nature of, of the Christian life, the nature of discipleship and salvation. Uh, some of you have heard this. John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist movement, uh, had a really powerful way of describing the way that the Holy Spirit works in salvation, everything that God is doing in salvation. He said there are three movements to salvation. The first he called prevenient grace. This is the, this is the operation of the Holy Spirit. Prevenient means coming before. It's the grace that prepares you to say yes to Jesus. And so in my family, I have generations of people who've been praying for me. I, have, I, was, I was born into a family that went to church. I had mentors. I had neighbors, people who were sowing seeds of the gospel in me. They were readying my heart for the day that I said yes to Jesus and every day when I'm continuing to be invited to say yes to Jesus. God has been working in your life, probably in ways that you can't even tell, to ready you to say yes to Jesus because He loves you. Even redeeming the stuff about your story that you are ashamed of and just is that you never wish on another person. Even those things that other people intended for harm, God has been repurposing for good. This is provenient grace. God has been working to ready you to say yes to Jesus. 
Which leads us to the second movement of grace, which Wesley called justifying grace. This is what we typically think of as salvation. It's the moment you raise your hand, you say a prayer, you say yes to Jesus, whether it was a one-time thing or it was a gradual thing. Justifying grace is when we trust in Jesus to be what we can't be for ourselves. When we're fed up with our own sin and we know that we can't be made right on our own, we got a guilty conscience, we can't cleanse on our own. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us. If you experience the forgiveness of God, this is God's justifying grace. He had been leading you up to this moment where you could say yes to Jesus. And you can't claim any credit for your salvation because He's the one who'd gotten you ready, who'd empowered you, who'd liberated your will so that you could say yes. Now, maybe you've had the language of provenient grace before. I'm guessing most of us, if, if we knew justification, like that's the part we knew but there's another movement of grace that often goes unexplored for followers of Jesus. It's what my friend J.D. Walt calls the second half of salvation, and it's what Wesley called sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace is in provenient grace is everything that God does to ready you to say yes to Jesus. Through justifying grace, God makes you, makes you new, takes you from death to life, forgives your debt, your, your, your debt topples the powers that were oppressing you. But through sanctifying grace, God is making you like Jesus. That's what John said in his first letter. He said, in this world, we are like Him. Jesus wants to walk with you. Jesus wants to teach you what it would be like to be Him if He were you. Uh, Dallas Willard said, if I'm Jesus' disciple, that means I'm with Him to learn from Him how to be like Him. And this is the work of sanctification. And, and few enter these uncharted waters. Few go into the adventure, the uncharted territory of following Jesus into the world of sanctification, into the second half of salvation. G.K. Chesterton said, Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting. In other words, it's not that people tried it and thought that's a letdown. He said, it's been found difficult and left untried. It's the rich young ruler who hears the cost and walks away sad. They see it difficult and they walk away sad. They don't try it at all. And it's our lack of integration, it's our lack of cooperation with the work of the Holy Spirit to be sanctified that the world has found so deeply objectionable about Christianity because we use pretty rosy language and we quote the Sermon on the Mount on Sunday mornings, but during the week we're just as judgmental, just as broken, just as everything as everybody else, and so we have no moral authority. It's our lack of integration, our lack of sanctification, our lack of cooperation to go with Jesus into the second half of salvation for, for which we have no credibility in the world. It's what Gandhi famously said about Christians. He said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians because your Christians are not like your Christ. So it raises this fundamental question for us about, like, how do we grow? Like, how do we do it? It's not for lack of trying for many of us. We've exhausted our willpower, or maybe we just don't know what to do. How do you become a person or a community shaped by the gospel? How do we grow? I like to start new habits at the end of the year instead of the beginning of the year. For whatever reason, that feels better. But, man, I've burned out so many habits. There's so many of us who have, like, not lost the weight or not picked up the habit or not taken out the trash our willpower has, has been exhausted. We've tried really hard. It's not for lack of desire. So how do we change? 
Um, in our apprentice groups, which are a, a small group uh, that we've been, we've been doing, we launched those in the fall, in September. Who's in, a, in an apprentice group right now? Okay, cool. We're going to launch these again uh, in January, so if you're not a part of an apprentice group, I'd love to invite you to be. But we're using this book called The Good and Beautiful God by James Bryan Smith. And James Bryan Smith is writing in the opening chapter about how does a person change? How do we change? And he talks about the role of willpower in change. This is what he says. He says, the three primary influencers on the will are the mind, the body, and the social context. The mind, the body, and the social context. First, what we think about in our minds will in turn create emotions, which leads to decisions or actions. Second, the body is a complete inner working of impulses that influences the will. Most of our bodily system run, runs without our help, but when the body has a need like food or water, it expresses itself to the mind through feelings that show up as hunger or thirst. And it alerts the mind to send a message to the will, get food now. So your brain and your body are working together to tell your will what to do. Um, finally, the will is also influenced by our social context. We're highly influenced by the people around us. The will is neither strong nor weak. This is good. He says, like a horse, the will has only one task to do, and that's to do what the rider, which is our body, our mind, and our social context, tells it to do. The, 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 our will is just waiting to be bossed around by our, our mind, our social context, and by our body. Therefore, change, or lack thereof, is not an issue of the will at all. Change happens when these other influencers are modified. And the good news is that we have control over those other influencers. When new ideas, new practices, new social settings are adopted, change happens. In addition to all this, the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives to conform us in increasing measure uh, to the likeness of Christ. Change requires new thinking. It requires new habits. It requires a new community. Um, when I was a little kid, I, had, I took piano lessons, and uh, you don't learn the piano by just thinking about the piano. Uh, once a week, I would go over to Mrs. Pierce's house, and I would learn F-A-C-E, E-G-B-D-F. I'd learn the bass, tref, bass clef, treble clef. It's been a while. Clef. Not cleft palate. Clef. And... Uh, and then, you know, learn my scales, da 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 You learn your chords, you learn your arpeggios, you practice, you practice. We started doing sheet music, and she put a little star. Every day, practice until you get to this part of the music. I was training my body. I was in a social context around other learners. There's new information. There's something new happening my, with my body. There's a new social environment, which is why, you know, the apprentice groups have been, have been so powerful. And the apprentice groups are not magic. They're not an end in themselves, but it's a context where we can influence the things that influence our will, our thinking. Are we thinking the right things about God? Are the knee-jerk narratives, when tragedy happens and you're trying to make sense of it and you're thinking about what God thinks about this, are the knee-jerk narratives in your mind right in the way that you think about God? For many of us, we don't think about God as, as generous. We think about God as like watching our every move and stingy. We don't think of our, our minds have not been trained, retrained by grace. Most of us think more in terms of karma. If I do good stuff, God's going to give me good stuff. If I do bad stuff, I'm going to get bad stuff from God because that's the way everything else in the world works. We need to, to influence the things that are influencing our will, the narratives we believe, what's going on in our mind. 
We need to change our habits. We've been learning, you know, to sleep, to, to, to pay attention to our body, to look at nature. And then we've been doing it in the context of community. This is a tool to begin taking steps to be shaped by the gospel. I've been thinking about, you know, every Sunday, you know, we get together. There's a social context here where there's an opportunity to stimulate our minds in one way or another. There's an opportunity to think about our practices together. And uh, for the last couple of months, I've been thinking and praying about what, how do we leverage this time and this context to affect our will to choose the way of Jesus, to be rooted and built up in Jesus. And, uh, you know, the different sermon series we could do for next year and I was talking to my buddy Andrew, who's a pastor in Dallas, and he shared with me something that his church did the last year. That he said, one of the things I'm convinced of is there may be people who can come to Jesus apart from the Bible, but there will not be growth. There will not be, as Paul says in Romans 12 too, transformation by the renewal of our minds apart from reading and studying Scripture. And so Andrew and his church, Munger Place, made a big decision that they were going to throw out all of their like topical sermons for the next year, and they were going to read through the Bible as a church. So on January 1, everybody cracked open Genesis 1, and it only takes like six chapters of Genesis to where you get into some weird stuff, which is why you need to do it together. Genesis, uh, January 1st, they started Genesis 1. Christmas Eve, they finished Revelation 22. There's a church, they read through the Bible, and Andrew thought, well, I've got to reinforce what we're doing during the weeks on Sunday, and so threw out all of his planned messages for the year and taught through the Bible as the church read through the Bible and saw just amazing things that God was doing as in community, they were paying attention to their narratives, what was going on in their mind, they were reorienting their habits, what's going on in their body, and they were doing it in a community together. And so... Uh, I've been praying and thinking about 2019. I had some things that I was thinking about and, and been praying through this, and I thought, man, forget all that. Let's take a risk together. Let's do something big together. And so 2019, uh, that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to read through the Bible together. There's this amazing tool called the Bible Project, thebibleproject.com. And, uh, and they've, they've created an app called Reading Scripture, Read Scripture, and, uh, and they've integrated these amazing videos uh, teaching, like, introductions to uh, each book of the Bible, to themes, to words. I watched five videos last night on how to read the Bible, and it's, I mean, it's, it's staggering. It's amazing, amazing content. And so we're doing this in the interest of being a community shaped by the gospel as a way of saying, you know what, like, we don't have total perspective. We're going to throw out our narrative and our agenda for the next year, and God, like, we're just going to trust that you got something for us. So if you can speak through Leviticus, bring it, because we need some help. <laughs> Numbers, oh my goodness. Uh, so that's what we're going to do together as a, as a congregation. The goal is not, is not like to tick off that we've read the, read the Bible as a church, John Orberg has this great quote. He said, my primary goal is not to get people all the way through the Bible. My primary goal is to get the Bible all the way through the people. And so we're doing this. Jesus harped on the Pharisees. Pharisees. He said, you read Scripture and you're so proud of yourselves, but you're missing how the Scriptures are pointing to me. And so we're going to do this together as a congregation. We'll talk a ton about what this looks like and how we do it. But the, the, the call to be a community shaped by the gospel is not fast. It's not easy. It's not something you can do by yourself. And it's the call of everybody who loves Jesus to live our lives in Him, to be rooted in Him, built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you are taught. It's long, hard work. About a month ago, Emily and I went to South Dakota with the kids just to play. Some of you have seen this. And uh, 
We, we went to Rushmore, which was just so inspiring, and uh, we drove about 20 miles away, and we went to this monument called the Crazy Horse National Monument, okay? Hayden knows what I'm talking about. Crazy, who, who's ever heard of the Crazy Horse National Monument, okay? We went there. A crazy horse was this, uh, this uh, Native American warrior. This is a, a, a model of what the monument's going to be. In 1915, Chief Henry Standing Bear met this Polish sculptor at the World's Fair and said, I want you to, uh, to create a sculpture on this mountain of, of Crazy Horse because I want our people to know that we have heroes too. And so after working on Mount Rushmore, this Polish sculptor and his wife moved to the base of the mountain in South Dakota, and they built a cabin, and there they had 10 children. Uh, they, started in, they started work on the, on the mountain in the 1940s. They had 10 children. Those children grew up blowing up granite off the mountain and driving backhoes and bulldozers and all this. Those children grew up and had children of their own. Now the third generation of this family is working on the mountain. It's been 70 years. And do you know what they've done in 70 years? Susan, let's do the next picture. His face. In 70 years, they've done his face. The flat part that you see in front of it is his hand extended to the west. The tip of his index finger is visible. They still have to do his neck, his chest, his torso, and, and then the horse beneath him. I left so inspired because this family had to know that the work we're setting out to do is not something that we can accomplish in our lifetime, nor in the lifetime of our children or maybe even our children's children. They had a vision of what they felt called to do. They were committed to it, to see it through for the generations. And Emily and I left just feeling so inspired. We thought, man, what would it look like to develop a vision for our family that blesses our children's grandchildren? What would it look like to develop a vision for our family that blesses our grandchildren's grandchildren? Something so much bigger than us. How do we instill in our family a sense of mission and purpose and clarity that they want to see the work through themselves? And then we started to think about the church. What does it look like for a church not to get drunk on the cramming Sunday mornings and having short-term wins? What does it look like for a church to develop a multi-generational vision that would bless our children's grandchildren or our grandchildren's grandchildren? And this kind of thinking is the, is the thinking that drives discipleship. It's long. It's slow. We go at the pace of the sculptor as we're cooperating with him. This is the work of sanctification. This is the second half of salvation. This is what it means to be a community shaped by the gospel, to band together for the long haul, to join Jesus in what he's doing in this beautiful sculpture that he's trying to make of his church. There's an invitation to cooperate. And so this morning, you know, this is what Sunday mornings are. Sunday mornings are coming with a hammer and a chisel, and you get off a tiny, like, speck of rock. And maybe in two years, a nose emerges or something like that. It's the ordinary grace, the ordinary work of the Holy Spirit in shaping us into the image of Christ. And there's a question, are we cooperating I don't ask you where you are this morning. Maybe you would say, thinking through Wesley's movements of grace, that you know that God has been readying you to say yes to Jesus or cooperate with Jesus, but you've never crossed the line where you say, I want in. 
Or maybe you've had that moment or it's been over time where you've said yes to Jesus. You know that your sins are forgiven. Your debt has been paid. You've gone from death to life. You, you're, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, but you've not cooperated with Jesus in the second half of salvation, cooperating with Him in sanctification, inviting the sculptor to make you into this great, grand work. What step is God inviting you to take to cooperate more fully with the work of Jesus in you? Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that this task and this vision is not our own, uh, that you are the head of the church. In you, you are the head, you're before all things, and in you all things hold together. Uh, we submit to you, Lord Jesus, uh, where we are in error, where we're in sin, where we're blind to our worldview and our biases and our idols. I pray that you'd correct us. Remember the words of David, who can discern their own sin? We know that we're blind to it. Lord Jesus, I pray for each, each one of us individually that you give us the grace to cooperate more fully with your work in us. For those who are here who have never crossed the line of faith and never trust in you, I just pray today that you give them the grace and the courage to say, I, I want to be part of your family. I want to be made right with you. For those with a guilty conscience, for those who know they're carrying around uh, debt for their sin, I pray that you give them the grace to surrender it to you and that you give them your righteousness. And for those of us who've trusted in you, I pray that you give us the courage to say, like, you're, you're the potter, I'm the clay. You're the sculptor, I'm the mountain. Do whatever you want. Shape me, renew me, correct me. Uh, blow up my idols, blow up my blind spots, and make me into something beautiful. I pray that you'd move in power, Holy Spirit, in our church and help us uh, to develop uh, stamina as we follow in the long, slow work of following Jesus. We pray as we did at the beginning of this month that if, if revival is the acceleration of the ordinary work of the Spirit, that you would send revival, send awakening, make happen in our time what we've heard you do in the past. For the glory of Jesus, in His name we pray, amen.